0: If you think you're hanging it out there, you probably are. Problem is, it's not like building a house. It's like every four or five years, you have to rebuild these systems because technology moves really fast. You're trying to paint a picture with an avalanche forecast and it's just, there's just so much going on, it's hard to tell the story. Simon Troutman, and you're listening to the Avalanche
1: Hour podcast. You're tuned into another episode of the Avalanche Hour podcast, your source for great conversations within the snow and avalanche community. I'm your host, Caleb Merrill. The Avalanche Hour podcast is proudly presented by VEASAN Avalanche Control, safety through innovation. The goal of this podcast is to create a stronger community through the sharing of stories, knowledge and news amongst people with a curious fascination of avalanches. Welcome back to the show, everybody. Hope you're having a great January out there wherever you are. I hope you're finding some soft turns in a stable snowpack. I'm out here in northeastern Oregon and right back into the swing of it, staying super busy. We don't necessarily have the most ideal snowpack, but we're playing the patience game and keeping our slope angles low, having a great time. Still plenty of fun snow to make some soft turns in. First, I'd like to acknowledge some support for this episode. Our first supporting partner is Athletic Greens. You've heard me talk about it before. I've been taking ag1 by athletic greens since may and it's really changed my routine on my health i couldn't stand taking all the vitamins losing track of all the pills and so i decided to simplify my routine by just taking one scoop of ag1 mixing it up with 12 ounces of water and drinking it down every morning i find that i have more energy increased focus better gut health and who couldn't use a little bit extra energy these days? I've found that it's the best option for easy, optimal nutrition, and I can get 75 high-quality vitamins, minerals, whole food source superfoods, probiotics, and adaptogens in about five seconds while I'm hydrating at the same time. I've been loving it, and I know you will too. Right now, it's time to reclaim your health and arm your immune system with the convenient daily nutrition. To make it easy, Athletic Greens is going to give you a free one-year supply of immune-supporting vitamin D and five free travel packs with your first purchase. All you have to do is visit athleticgreens.com slash avalanche hour. Again, that's athleticgreens.com slash avalanche hour to take ownership over your health and pick up the ultimate daily nutritional insurance. Well, we're going to get right into it today. I've got a great interview teed up for you with Simon Troutman. What a great guy. Had a really fun time with this interview. And Simon is the the new director, longtime avalanche specialist for the National Avalanche Center. And I say new director as Carl Berklin recently retired from his position as director of the National Avalanche Center. Um, what, a, what a great career Carl has had. And I'm sure he's not exactly going to be just walking off into the sunset at the beach. Yeah, I'm sure he could find him out skiing uh, more days than he previously did, perhaps. Uh, but Carl, we thank you for your service and all your contributions to the community. Thank you very much. And additional support for today's episode is provided by Backcountry Nav. Backcountry Nav is an online Zoom course tailored to exactly what you're looking for to become a better tour planner in the backcountry. Perhaps you've taken an avalanche course and felt like the backcountry tour planning portion was a bit glossed over, especially in the hybrid versions of many avalanche courses these days. Well, Dave and Backcountry Nav is there to help. You can sign up for a tailored course, a three hour Zoom class where Dave utilizes the platforms of Gaia and FatMap and walks you through exactly how you can plan out your backcountry adventure. Whether you're on skis, a snowboard, snowshoes, or a snow machine, Dave will work with you and your touring partners to make you better prepared to anticipate the terrain that you want to avoid. We know that we can't control the weather, we can't control the snowpack, but we can control our exposure to avalanche terrain through good tour planning. Refine your skills with Dave and Backcountry Nav today. Check out backcountrynav.com to learn more and book a course with your touring partners today. Without further ado, let's jump right in with Simon Troutman. Welcome to the show, Simon. What's happening? How's it going? It's going well. It's awesome. November first here as we as we record this episode. um where are you calling in from?
0: In bellingham, Washington, and uh where it's where it's dark. it's seven in the morning, but uh see a little sun peeking out now, so that's a good thing.
1: Right on. Snow up high? A little bit. Yeah.
0: Probably pretty high. Yeah. <laughs> a lot of rain lately, uh-huh. which is good.
1: Nice. Well, Simon, uh, let's get to know you a little bit better here. Uh, talk to us about who you are and what you do and how you got there.
0: I am, uh, my job title is National Avalanche Specialist, which is a mouthful. Um, The short side of that is I work for the Forest Service uh, for an outfit called the National Avalanche Center. And uh, I guess how I got here is kind of long and roundabout.
1: So you've held held quite a few jobs previous to your position at the National Avalanche Center. Um, I know you've been a, a ski patroller. I know you've been a forecaster at a couple different avalanche centers. Um, and a director of the Sawtooth Avalanche Center for a time. Um, talk about kind of how you got into this. What was the, what was the inception of of your travels into the winter backcountry environment? How did you get hooked?
0: That's a great good question. I um, I think the first time I remember like being at I used to when I was a kid. I grew up in Wyoming and we hunted a lot, and I I just have these memories of being on horses in the winter time it was really probably wasn't quite winter but it was no November, November and really cold winter conditions you know and and just being so damn cold that i could barely deal with it and um and i loved it and it was, <laughs> it was the first time i realized that i just i just really like winter and um so that was kind of maybe the start of just thinking about you know, winter and snow and cold. And and uh, then, yeah, over the years, I think that uh, at some point I landed in the Navy. And frankly, there's not a lot of winter in the Navy. And that's the second time I really remember thinking about, you know, just what I like and what I don't like. And um, so I got out of there as quick as I could and figured out a way to to go be closer to mountains and and to be in snow and and somewhere somewhere along that path and that journey I um I really got into backcountry skiing and started started getting interested in avalanches and then liked it enough that I ended up going to graduate school to uh to study snow a little bit I studied some wet snow stuff at MSU and uh then I went to Moonlight Basin and ski patrolled. Um, took a hiatus and went to went to work for a real job for two years. Wasn't very happy. Um, wasn't sad, but wasn't happy. And uh then went down to the to Colorado to work, do some public forecasting for the Colorado Avalanche Information Center. Then from there I went to the Sawtooth Avalanche Center. And um then from there I went to the National Avalanche Center and uh and then got was lucky enough to do some work for NWAC for a couple of years as well during a kind of operational change that they underwent, uh, which was really great. So you yeah, have kind of bounced around and, um, and I still like winter, but I don't like being cold quite as much as I used to.
1: So talk a little bit about what the National Avalanche Center is. Is it, um, I think when people first hear that, they think of a, a grandiose building with huge pillars and, um, you know, a big reception and it, it sounds very authoritative a bit, but give us some context to what the national avalanche center is and how it supports, um, other avalanche centers within the U S.
0: Yeah, it's, it's, uh, it's not grandiose. Um, but it does cast a wide net and it, uh, you know, right now it, it It consists of of myself and my boss, Carl Berkman. and uh, we have two main programs. Um, One of them is dealing with uh, partnership between the Army and the Forest Service for uh, military artillery use at ski areas. And the other is um, Avalanche Center program. And we we work as an umbrella organization for 14 Forest Service Avalanche Centers in the United States. So backcountry forecasting operations. And what we do is we try and you know, all of those operations are local units, they're independent. Um, we provide support and guidance and kind of a thread that ties them all together. And then
1: what is the connection to the A three of the American Avalanche Association with the NAC, the National Avalanche Center?
0: We have a partnership with them um, on that that spans a couple different um, couple different things over the years. Uh, originally, it started as a partnership to develop uh, swag, snow weather, and avalanche guidelines. And recently, over the last five or six years, it has developed into a partnership um, that's centered around avalanche.org and that partnership has has really um, it's really morphed into something which is which is really the large part of my job at this part, point it's kind of all encompassing and it consists of two two main pieces the first being uh the avalanche.org website which is you know a public interface and hub for backcountry avalanche information in the US it hasn't always been that way Uh, but it is now. And the second piece is a behind the scenes, uh, web technology suite where we build tools, um, that allow avalanche forecasters to do their jobs. And so, um, you know, anything from creating avalanche forecasts to displaying weather stations to, uh, submitting, you know, different forms of media, um, We package it all on the back end, behind the scenes, and we've figured out ways to, um, basically, we create a centralized workspace for forecasters, and then the information that they enter into that workspace uh, is visualized on the local websites, Avalanche Center websites.
1: And so that also creates some consistency between the Avalanche Centers.
0: Yes, it can. And so the... The main the main goal of that project is, you know, over the years, like I said, there's there's a lot of avalanche centers in the United States. There's about twenty, uh, give or take, and those operations or those centers they they come in all shapes and sizes. You have you have large centers that have multi-million dollar budgets on a on a year-to-year uh, basis, uh, right next to smaller centers that have maybe you know, maybe they're coming in at $100,000 or $150,000. They're all trying to do the same thing at a different scale. And what they're trying to do is to provide uh, information, and in some cases, education, avalanche information, education to the public for the areas that they work. And these days, doing that requires uh, a pretty robust web technology platform. Like you just can't communicate today without solid web tech and maintaining that tech is uh, takes a lot of resources. And so when you look at smaller centers versus larger centers and you look at the percentage of the um, percentage of the percentages of their resources or their budgets that go to technology. It's pretty crazy. Like you, like even though a larger center like the Northwest Avalanche Center is spending you know over a hundred thousand dollars a year on their web technology, the percentage of Northwest Avalanche Center's budget is actually lower than if you look at uh, a smaller avalanche center like the Wallowa Avalanche Center or like the Idaho Panhandle Aval- Avalanche Center. And so, to get back to your question, so so if that's the backdrop um what we've seen over the years is people or these these centers they spin up they form they there's a flurry of activity they spend a lot of money on web technology and then and then they move on and they try to do their jobs the problem is it's not like building a house it's like every four or five years you have to rebuild these systems because technology moves really fast and so What we've seen is people struggling over the years, just trying to simply keep up. It's the classic haves and have nots kind of situation. And so back to your question um, about consistency. Yes, like harnessing technology and creating shared, you know, shared and collaborative workspaces where people can. um, People are building the same products does increase cons- consistency and it's and it's a good thing but what it also does and maybe more importantly and the reason that we built it, um, is that it it creates economies of scale and we can we can share resources and that's both money and time and we can build this stuff and we've been able to largely subsidize it through federal uh funding sources And then we can give it to these avalanche centers, regardless of size, at a pretty low rate. And so it not only, it basically allows them to forecast on like their jobs, like what they're there for, allows them to go outside and it allows them to communicate with the public about avalanches instead of mandating that they're spending a lot of time and an inordinate amount of time, in some cases, on figuring out, you know, how to make their website work.
1: Yeah, I think something you said there that that strikes me is is just the the ability for say a smaller avalanche center to you know not have to focus on the IT side of things so much, you know, maybe the budgets aren't there to have a full-time IT staff, right? And so um I think it it seems great that it's it's scalable um to the size of the avalanche center. Let's let's back up a little bit and talk about kind of why we have different avalanche centers why um why why it's important to have autonomy within those separate avalanche centers within the US and kind of how did it come about like what was the inception of avalanche centers in the US
0: It's a great question. Um yeah, we have a we have a very different system right now than say our closest neighbor which is Canada. And um you know the first, and, and the reason it's different is that the system is largely, as you as you mentioned, decentralized, which means that each each locale is an independent operation. Um, but the first public forecasts were um, kind of came about in an ad hoc fashion in the 50s and the 60s, and they were they were put out by Forest Service snow rangers that were you know embedded or working within and around ski areas. And they started putting warnings out, avalanche warnings out, when you know conditions got really bad. And so you have this kind of, at least to my knowledge, the first kind of you know formal forecasting for the public, not in a scary setting, was happening kind of 50s and 60s by the Forest Service. And those were usually done through hotlines and kind of other forms of outreach. And then in the 70s, kind of in response to a growth in uh, backcountry use, you see modern day avalanche centers are the first iterations of them um, come to be in places like Denver was the first, early 70s, um, Seattle came shortly thereafter and then Salt Lake City shortly after that. And so those 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 centers, the larger, when they, today they continue to be uh, the centers in those places, continue to be the largest places it's the largest population set, you know, these tend to be the three hubs in the West. And um, following that, um, throughout the 90s and the 2000s, there was really kind of an explosive growth um, starting out in the 90s with places like the Gallatin mm-hmm. National Forest Avalanche Center and the Sawtooth Avalanche Center and the Flathead Avalanche Center, um, those types of operations came online and then the 2000s you have like the sierra avalanche center eastern sierra avalanche center um, payette places like that Uh, and then at the tail end um, we started to see so most of those centers they were all local they were organically formed in response to generally you know tragedies that happen in local communities and communities getting together and saying, hey, we have an issue here, we need to try to address this. And the mechanism by which they did that was forming a community group that could support a forest service program. So it's it's the agency working with the the localities to come up with a solution. And and it was done in in, in a variety of different ways. Um, Most recently, we've seen growth in fully nonprofit centers Uh, kind of around the edges. They tend to be smaller places. Um, Forest service budgets have been cut way back, so sometimes it's hard to figure out ways to partner with the agency. Um, But we've got several really, at this point, what I would consider pretty successful operations that are fully fully uh, Mm -hmm. non nonprofit.
1: So just to recap there, you'd mentioned earlier, there's 14 forest service avalanche centers. And then of course the Colorado avalanche information center is funded through the state of Colorado. Um, and then a number of these nonprofit, uh, avalanche centers that are, are funded by the local community and grants say, um, so, uh, as a Forest Service employee, you kind of bridge that gap between not only the Forest Service avalanche centers, but also um, into the the more local Type Two centers that are that are run by the nonprofit. Seems like a a great collaboration there.
0: Yeah, and I think it's an important one. That was a, a very uh, one thing I'll say real quick before I jump into that. I think it's important to say like most of these centers are forest service but the largest center is the Colorado uh, Center um, in some in some ways that operation is as large as as all the forest service centers put together um, it started as a forest service center and then at some point it was part of the research research station Rocky Mountain Research Station and at some point it got jettisoned and the state picked it up and ran with it um, so highly successful and and working on a scale that's that's larger than most of the rest Um, but yeah we made a decision um, several years ago that it didn't make i think it's better it's better for the whole group and for the public to work with all of these centers and try and bring everybody up instead of just focusing on the forest service group And, of course, that comes with a lot of nuance, and there's things we do for the Forest Service Group we don't do for the nonprofits. But the important thing is that, like these tools we were talking about a minute ago, forecasting tools, they are available um, not to anybody that wants them, but they're available to um, professional operations that have shown that, um, you know, they're... They're public safety oriented. They're in it for the long haul. They just need good resources, and they can they can uh, put together a good product. You know, when and if we can make those partnerships and those those relationships, we definitely definitely want to do that. Another another interesting thing I think or an important point is that regardless of the size, all of these avalanche centers in the United States. The strength of our system is that um, each one has a local community group that supports it. And so in the perfect sense, you know, this is, this is kind of an optimized or generalized description, but what we shoot for, at least within the Forest Service, is that the, the agency covers 50% of the costs and the community covers 50% of the costs. And, and
1: you're say you're saying the cost of um, getting the forecasting tools from the National Avalanche Center
0: um I just mean in terms of running the centers period mm-hmm. yep so like whether it's you know A to Z the cost of operation is shared by the communities and it's a really important nuance and, and that is why there's such strong community backing and support for these operations because the communities literally are like they're part of it. (laughs) And um and in some ways you could look at that as as a frustrating thing that like that the get that the government can't cover this kind of stuff. But in other ways what it does is it does tie in these a lot of sense a lot of times rural western towns, it ties the community directly into the agency. And so what we see is that there's a lot of places where Forest Service programs are not popular be it timber or range or or even recreation i wouldn't go so far as to say every person out there loves the, the avalanche center but like we're a popular program we work hard people see it but more importantly the community is part of the part of the product you know the community is is integral to the success of the avalanche center and I really think that that's that shows and that's part that's one of our strengths in the u s you know so you you have a community that's tight and part of the project or the initiative, and then you have forecasters that are embedded in the geographies for which they're forecasting for, which is really really important um you know they're talking about the snow that they they were in the day before um instead of talking about snow that's on the other side uh comment
1: so Simon, talk a little bit about how the the role of the NAC is um, smoothing out the <laughs> the transition into having a bit more of consistent end product for the user, like um, maybe create some context as to you've you've been alluding to this, but in the past the each Avalanche center kind of had their own end product. And they'd cover all of the same things. But if you're coming from Colorado up to Washington for a ski trip, you would get a bit of a different look to the avalanche forecast um, than, than you do now. And so uh, talk about some of those intricacies and the importance of, of helping to have the same end product in different regions as is happening for many centers now.
0: Yeah, I think by, um, I can't remember for sure how much we talked about this a minute ago, but short backstory is that we maintain a suite of forecasting tools that are are centralized and are available to any avalanche center that wants them. Not all avalanche centers use them, um, but a lot do. And five years ago, that wasn't the case. So what we have now is is you know I think um yeah so we maintain a suite of forecasting tools that's available to any avalanche center that wants them and what those tools do is they allow avalanche centers basically to like each center maintains its own website but when they go to work when they build a forecast They're doing it on what we call the Avalanche Center dashboard, which is just, just a back end behind the scenes website. So everybody goes to work on this website and the products they create because they're centralized and they're coming from the same place, the products are the same. And so that means that whether you, you know, you're over in New Hampshire or whether you're in Seattle, if the Avalanche Center is using this back end, Uh, Suite of tools the avalanche forecast looks the same the weather station array looks the same observations look the same um, On down the line and so That's important for a variety of reasons on the on the worker side Or the operational side. It's important because it means that All these avalanche forecasters workspaces are the same so we can actually for the first time in the united states we can create training specific to avalanche forecasters and how you would go about producing a forecast for somebody so that that's that's important for the worker it's also important for the public because it means that the consistency between products regardless of what they look like like people are using the same methodologies to come to the same decisions when they communicate so that's a that's a huge thing. Um, On the public side, it's important because it produces a consistent, like you mentioned, a consistent product through space. And that's important because, like, there's the obvious reason, like, you can't communicate if you don't communicate consistently. So, or you can't communicate well.
1: I I think that's a good point about, like, if you're traveling, um, you know, it's it's kind of something that I often come back to.
0: Yeah, so... So, you know, for the public, this stuff is really important in, in 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 a lot of ways, but in a simple, simple sense, just like imagine traveling between Jackson and Seattle. And if the information, both the flow of information and the type of information you get is the same, it's just easier and better. It's easier to assimilate it. Um, another example would be um, public avalanche education or backcountry avalanche education on the recreational track like if you're an education provider and everybody uses a different style format or even language around avalanches you have to create different content for each different locale if that content becomes more streamlined and harmonized it's much easier to create and deliver that content and 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 uh, accordingly, it means that if that content is streamlined and harmonized, then the person receiving it, their education is going to be more applicable when they travel, um, than than in, in, in times past when, um, you know, maybe products were very different between, say, Denver and Seattle. Hmm.
1: So Simon, let's take a deeper look into what's involved in an avalanche forecast, at least in the end product. Um, so I was hoping you could kind of break down an avalanche forecast and and what's included when you open up the say the NWAC site, right?
0: I think that's a great example because the NWAC is using is using these um, tools to create their forecasts, and so I'll just stick to what's in what's in the the national national model. And so the way these things are built is that they start with um very most simple information that we can come up with, um, information that's good for, for anybody. And we call that the bottom line and, and basically that's just a summary statement that anyone can understand um, from from somebody that knows nothing about avalanches all the way up to somebody that knows more than you and I do. About avalanches. And it's just kind of the take-home bottom line thing. It's like if you're if your wife, girlfriend, significant other of of whatever sort is heading out the door, like what are you gonna tell them on their way out the door? If you know something about the day, what do you want them to know? That's what we put at the top. And then from there we kind of drill down and get deeper and deeper into um into the analysis for the day. And so we move from the bottom line into the avalanche danger. And avalanche danger is is a broad brushstroke of of daily conditions, and um, you know it it uh, it's a comp it's complex in its application, but it's it can be simple as well, and um, it's basically just a one to five scale, five being the the scariest and one being the least scary, and we figure out a way to to paint the picture for the day. Broad brush stroke of what you're going to see is it green or is it red? You know, it kind of speaks for itself.
1: Um I think I think an important point there is that's aspect and elevation dependent, right? And so that's broken out into with some centers into just elevation and other centers into elevation and aspect, right?
0: Yep. And so um yeah, I think that's a really important point, you know. You can, uh, you can apply an avalanche danger to, to whatever scale you want, as long as you do it um, in a critical fashion. And so the way that we do it is we, at the current time, we're applying it elevationally um, instead of by elevation and by aspect. There's nothing wrong with doing it that way. Um, we've decided to apply it just to elevations because that seems to work better for the greatest um, number of geographies. So if you think about it, like if you go down to Utah, um, you get big storms followed by big high pressure. And so you get some real, and you have relatively small, somebody's going to get mad at this, relatively small mountain ranges bounded by deserts. And so you can get really strong aspect-oriented patterns in danger that you can describe on a day-to-day basis down there, and they're really important. So it's totally legit. If you start looking at um, a lot of different types of mountain ranges all the way from maritime climates out into New Hampshire uh, and up into Alaska, uh, it doesn't mean that you can't still find those patterns. By aspect and elevation but it does get a little bit messier and a little bit harder um, and but we so we've decided what we can do is pull the danger out by elevation still give good information and we still drill down into the aspects just later on in the process in, in the in the process and so what we're doing by, by we're bounding the avalanche danger by elevation and then we're saying, because once again, it's a broad brush and we're saying, and if you want more specificity, then you move further down in the product into avalanche problems, which are going to give you uh, a specific location or a more specific location based on what type of avalanche you're dealing with on the given day. And um, I think that's a great spot to just say like there's no one right way to do this stuff but the closer we can get to following a critical path and doing it the same way the better it is like we talked about a minute ago both for the worker and for the the user the public user um just using the same language is super important
1: so as we move through the avalanche forecast here um you know, generally there's two, uh, or there can be up to two avalanche problems listed. Um, So uh, a problem type, and then you get more of a compass rose with elevation bands to uh, denote where that avalanche problem might exist.
0: Yeah. And so avalanche problems can really, should really be thought of as consisting of four, four elements. So you have the type of avalanche you're dealing with, you have its location in the terrain. Sometimes it's everywhere. Sometimes it's very specific. You know, um, and then you have how hard it or how likely you are to trigger it. So it's like, is this thing going to be really easy to trigger, or is it really going to be kind of stubborn and hard hard to trigger? And then the fourth thing you have the size. And so the combination of those four things is really that's what an avalanche problem is. And then if you combine the avalanche problems, that's how you come up with the hazard or the danger for the day. So when you're looking at the danger, it's just a broad impression of like all this stuff's going on in the background. How dangerous is it today on a, on a scale in a simple sense? And then when you go down into the avalanche problems, you drill a little deeper into the specifics um, of why. So once again, it's what are you dealing with? Where is it at? how easy it's going to be to trigger and how big is it going to be? And we do, like you said, we try to keep that two, just in an effort to not, you know, overload or just detract or confuse. But, you know, there's, there's obviously days where you might have four or five different kind of avalanches out there that are going to get you. And sometimes if it's bad enough, we will add more than two. Um, but we try to to keep it, we shoot for brevity in that. Mm -hmm.
1: And so there's descriptions with the avalanche problem types um, that go along and usually some media as well. Um, And and then we can drill in even deeper through the forecast discussion. So what's the purpose of the forecast discussion?
0: The forecast discussion right now is it's a catch-all. And... um, it can, be, it can be an opportunity to tie everything together. Sometimes you're trying to paint a picture with an avalanche forecast. And it's just, there's just so much going on. It's hard to tell the story. So the, so the discussion is a spot where if you need to, you can tell the story. Um, it can also be a spot to um, for the forecaster to get creative a little bit, ad lib. It's like big picture ideas drilling down into the minutiae. That's the place to to deal with it. So there's more there's more there's more space in the discussion than in the in the information that comes before in terms of like forecaster choice and how to use it on a given day.
1: Right. So a couple other elements that are in the the avalanche forecast are you know the, the tab that's populated right when you pull up an avalanche forecast is the avalanche danger that, that is after the bottom line. But then you can also tab over to the weather forecast, right? And so that's a, a weather forecast that's that's for the forecast region. And then also you can see the most recent observations. I've, I find it to be super user-friendly, um, but those are a couple other elements of the avalanche forecast that you'll see there.
0: Yeah, I mean, weathers can't have avalanches without some kind of input, you know? and um yeah weather's huge and uh it's interesting when we look at our when we look at our analytics fewer people are using the weather tab than we would have expected and huh. so but i don't think that means it's not important i think maybe maybe our design's a little weird or maybe we haven't you know maybe we need to do some outreach on how some of these other pieces work um, but we get a ton of interplay within the avalanche forecasts, and definitely less, less within the weather tab. But, but they're pretty good, and and it's and it's basically what they're doing in those weather tabs is the forecasters are they're using all the resources at their disposal to, to make a quick snapshot of mountain weather in the area, which is important for more than just avalanches it's how to dress it's it's what's coming tomorrow it's it's the whole picture are you going to have fun or is it going to be hellish you know um
1: what day you should take off from work maybe yeah totally um and so some of that is auto populated from weather stations is that correct
0: yep so there are um that particular function uses a, a point um uh, Point tool from the National Weather Forecast, and basically, it, it on the back end we pick a point wherever the Avalanche Center wants that to be, and then you've got a um, a model running in the background that's generating points. And uh, then there's usually there's some there's some choice in how these things are set up, but then there's usually a a couple boxes that are manually uh, populated in terms of like how much did it snow how hard the wind blow last night, that kind of stuff. Forecaster can go in and have a little bit of, you know, some say over that.
1: It seems like another added benefit of having a bit more consistency is just the ability for avalanche forecasters to move around and, and work in different places and not have to relearn a whole new, new system on how to, how to develop a a product for the day. Right.
0: Oh, it's huge. Yeah. And it's uh it's huge for a couple of reasons, yeah, like you say, if you want to send somebody if you want to send somebody on an exchange, you could actually if they're if they're both using this system, you could actually put them to work if you wanted to. you know maybe you don't want to, but if you wanted to, you can. Um, I've actually in the last couple years pinch hitted for a couple operations where people got got sick or somebody's car broke or something weird happened, and we're able to like, just get up and get into the system. And I know like, you know, the information's there, it's not going to be as good as them putting it together, but you can work remotely on this stuff. It's, it's pretty important. Um, like I mentioned earlier, it's important for training. You know, you kind of know you can not only develop training, but like if you're looking to hire somebody and they've worked in these systems, you know what they've worked on, but you know how they, you know, um, to some degree, you know how they're, how they're process works in the morning which is really important from a you know hiring and uh, management standpoint so yeah a variety of things you you can achieve economies of scale and money resources efficiencies Um, at the end of the day data collection you know all this stuff is being housed so for the first time we have we have a tremendous amount of data all of a sudden and um, we're just starting to dabble with you know what we can do with that uh to both improve you know our outreach but also better understand our our jobs you know we can actually now compare operations by avalanche year you know we can get a feel for yeah it's 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 pretty cool
1: yeah so i'm sure there's it's taken a ton of work with it and i know next to nothing about Technology. I can barely turn on this microphone, but um, other other players that have been involved in in the development of this, who who's put in a bunch of work that you'd like to mention.
0: Oh yeah, I think. I mean, I think the whole Avalanche Center group needs a shout out because if you think about like just even avalanche.org, the public website, there's a map on the front, and that map is avalanche danger through space and it looks really simple until you start playing with it and you realize that those dangers change daily just to pull that information in you know that's a it's basically a collaboration of partnership between more than 25 different entities just to make that happen um everybody had to get together and and agree on on the timing like how does the map work how does the map look how are we going to distribute it there's like this huge collaboration behind the scenes just to make that one product so I think the whole group needs a shout out and I you know we could we could spend an hour just on talking about who needs to be recognized but I think just in terms of you know the Avalanche Center tools the products that we offer right now three three people really come to mind Chris Lundy is like without Chris none of this stuff would would happen at all. Amazing, amazing guy with that's good at a lot of different things. Um Scott Savage has helped a ton. He's not only helped develop some of these tools and given good ideas, but you know, most of the year he's Chris's boss and he allows Chris to work on this stuff. So that's I mean it's huge. Uh Andy Anderson has put a ton of time into this stuff and both in the idea space and actually on the tech um, tech side of things like he's andy has been around a long time and he's got his fingerprints all over this stuff and i could just i could just keep going on you know the other the other shout out you know we should give is snowbound solutions holds maintenance contract on all these systems and uh that's scott havens and clark Corey, and those guys have been great we've been working with them for six years and um can't really even imagine Switching gears at this point because they're so heavily embedded in, in everything we do. So I could go on and on on who, who deserves credit for this thing. Um, maybe the take home is it is a small community and these projects have probably touched everybody in it several times. And I feel bad for not even being able to say, you know, but I should say is all the Avalanche Center directors deserve a lot of credit for, for this stuff moving. The
1: way that it is right on well simon let's uh i want to talk a little bit about how a user of an avalanche forecast can sort of add some value to the forecast Do you have any ideas on how they might be able to do that
0: yeah they should give us observations i love
1: the plug there i I think (laughs) another, another thing that i think about with that is just establishing routines, right? And, and starting to, as soon as the forecasts start coming out for the season, starting to track those forecasts, even if you're not going out for the day, make it part of your morning coffee ritual to read the avalanche forecast, keep track of the weather, keep track of what's going on in the snowpack and the observations that are coming in from, from your region. Right. I think you can get a lot more out of, of reading an avalanche forecast. If you've been reading previous avalanche forecasts, right?
0: Yeah, there's no doubt. I mean, avalanche danger—we all know—but you know, it's it's dynamic. It changes day to day, hour to hour. Um, We just happen to track it on a day to day scale for backcountry forecasts. And and yeah, paying attention to what it's doing and how it's moving up and down, or not moving up and down, is super important uh, through time. And I think that you know, if I could just make one plug, it would be like interact with your avalanche centers. So like, if you, if the products are good, that's great. It's good for us to know, but it's more important for us to know if the products are missing the mark somehow, you know, and whether, and and that could be anything from like, Hey, you guys are way off today or girls are way off today. um, All the way down to, Hey, I just don't understand this idea of avalanche problems. Like, what's what gives you know so any any form of feedback and interaction is key um and then yeah and if you want to give observations that of course the more information we have on a day-to-day basis the better the product is and those obs could be anything from like here's a picture of an avalanche i saw to some you know crazy long professional field ob that takes me 20 minutes to dig through um, and frankly, for me, I like the short ones, short and sweet, it's hard to beat. Let me know what's important. What did you see out there and why does that matter? That, that helps a ton.
1: Throw some pictures in there, right? Picture. Throw some
0: pictures in there. Yep. And we've, Pick. and we're actively working, you know, we, we've actually just launched a first, uh, first iteration of a shared observation platform and this winter will be a bit of a test. There will be six to eight centers using it, um, and then we hope to expand it more broadly next year. Um, and and to be clear, it's it's a it's a public observation platform. It's not you know it's not for professionals. It's basically how does the public interact with an avalanche center and give information? Uh, and we have we've worked pretty hard to build a product that can be. Used from a variety of devices, you can little as little as to much as you want. Like there's there's avenues for for short obs and there's avenues for long obs, and we're hoping it's a it's a good deal all the way around.
1: And so, where will we see that this year?
0: Um, you will likely see that we're we're still that's still coming together, but you'll likely see it in uh, Jackson on the Flathead, uh, Payette. Wallawa, maybe a couple places in Alaska. AIC may hooked up to it. These things are easy to deploy, but you still have to deploy them. And so, yeah, we've we've got a handful of centers on the on the hook, but uh, we'll see we'll see who actually actually hooks it up.
1: Cool, that'll be exciting to to check out this season. I'd I'd also like to just kind of make a quick plug. For for anybody, if, you, if especially if you're new to reading avalanche forecasts, the tutorials that are on avalanche.org are excellent. And I know that the National Avalanche Center had a lot to do with putting those together, but it breaks it down in a very simplistic way of how to best use and how to best read the avalanche forecast. So I'll be sure to put in into the show notes a couple links to those videos. Uh, they're short; it's not going to take take your whole morning away or anything. Um, But check those out for sure.
0: Yeah, that's a great... I think, you know, we've got one on avalanche danger, one on avalanche problems, and one that ties it all together in the forecast as a whole. They're all under three minutes uh, independently. So yeah, they're frankly probably much more effective at describing this stuff than I was this morning.
1: (laughs) (laughs) No, that was great. That was great, Simon. Well, let's, uh, let's switch focus here a little bit and talk, talk a little bit more about you and, and your experiences in the mountains and the winter environment and, and um, yeah, lessons learned along the way throughout your career. Um, you recall a close call or an avalanche that left a big impression on you or helped change the way that you operate in the mountains? Um, anything come to mind, Simon?
0: First thing that comes to mind is is be careful of, of which job you get because um, it may take you out of the mountains more than you want it to. So always keep that in the back of your mind. I'm a kind of a phone jockey these days, so I'm probably not qualified to answer. <laughs>
1: <laughs>
0: but uh, no, in all seriousness, I think that uh, I can think of a, a you know there's a there's a lot of in kind of. Specific instances where I learned things, but maybe the most important lesson that I've learned to date is that you know our jobs, the reason we do these jobs is that they're at least at least initially is like they're fun, you know that's that's why we're doing it. We're not doing it because of the paycheck. We're not doing it, you know. Sometimes maybe you're doing it because it's cool, but like it's fun. And um, what that means, though, is that you're still at work, though. So how do you how do you like how do you know what's fun and what's recreation versus what's work? And I think when we get caught up in between the two, sometimes um, that can be very hard to navigate, but it also can lead to mistakes and or, you know, or worse. And so where I'm going with that is I think the most important thing I've learned is that when you're out there, like a lot of times, like you're operating independently, like you're making your own decision in the moment, and nobody is going to tell you no. There's exceptions to that, but there's a lot of cases in, in whether you're a you know a mechanized ski guide or backcountry ski, you know, non-mechanized ski guide or forecaster, or ski patroller, even a researcher. The reality is, in all of those jobs, you end up in these situations where. Nobody's looking and you need to act accordingly and just understanding nobody's going to tell you no, that you have to be your own police is, is huge. It's, it's just on you. Um, so anyway, super simple thought. I, uh, I don't know if it's useful or not, but for me, um, I've learned that lesson many times and I, and I think it's, I know it's important for me. You know, it's
1: listen to that little voice in your head.
0: If you think you're hanging it out there, you probably are.
1: <laughs> mm-hmm.
0: Listen to the voice and, or the lack of a voice. That's the other side of it. We can get really used to what we're doing on a day-to-day basis. And, uh, mm-hmm. yeah, if your voice isn't on and the person next to you's voice is on, there's probably a reason.
1: Simon, talk about a time when you got the forecast wrong. And what was involved in that? I mean, or maybe you, maybe you never have, but I've I never
0: have? ever blown a forecast, Caleb. <laughs> <laughs> it's uh, it's impossible. Um, man, that's a good one. I remember. So I think the very best example of when it mattered. So like, it's easy to get a forecast wrong when it doesn't matter. Um, it's pretty hard, and and. Hard, hard to deal with when you get a forecast wrong, when it does matter. The one that the one time that really comes to mind is we were stuck in a, I was working in Idaho and we were stuck in a kind of an incremental loading pattern where things were just, we had a deep weak layer, um, but we were just kind of getting six inches a day, eight inches a day, six inches a day, eight inches a day, four inches a day. And this was just going on for a week and the danger really just, just hadn't, hadn't changed but the avalanches had changed but the danger hadn't and i think that's a really important point for people to understand if they haven't if you haven't already come to this understanding like avalanche dangers are just buckets around a a continuum you know and so you can have considerable days that just aren't that scary but by definition they're considerable all the way up to considerable days that are absolutely terrifying and we're playing with things that we shouldn't be playing with because they're just too unpredictable, too big. Right. And so we were on that continuum somewhere and it was just considerable forever. And, uh, and I remember we got, there was one day I was, I was clocking out, somebody else was coming in and, um, and the only difference was, I just remember we got these, we got we got a couple pictures. They were really crappy. And all of a sudden, I remember looking at them and being like, oh, that's, that's kind of a big avalanche. But it didn't, for some reason, it just didn't, didn't trigger anything in my head. Well, like, we talked about it, and we were like, no, it's probably it's going to back off tonight. And anyway, long story short, they were indicator slides. Like, we got information that should have set off an alarm bell. We rolled into the next day, and I think we had like we had bumped it up a little, so we'd gone to like it was all considerable, and then we went to high in the very upper elevation and left it considerable down low. Point being we totally overthought it. There's a reason we went to high in the upper elevation band, but in hindsight, it was so clear that like we were having indicator slides, something had changed. That is not the time to try and like paint a pretty picture that's a time to step back and be like it's scary out there it's high top to bottom um and literally just that's the message like you stop trying to think about it and you just step back and say it's really scary so we missed that and um we overthought it and uh and the next day we had an accident and um and somebody died and so it uh you know, we end up in that spot where you're like, well, we may have been technically correct, but our message was really not the right message for that day. And uh and yeah, so I learned I learned a couple things there. You know, I learned about the power of of broad brushing versus being specific. There's days to do that, to do each of those. And when it's really dangerous outside, being specific is not as important as a really simple message.
1: That's a that's a that's a good point you made, Simon. And and good story to go along with it. Um, something I sometimes struggle with is, uh, your messaging becoming stagnant, right? You're tracking a persistent weak layer that's maybe, um, you know, buried within the snowpack and, and nothing, it's, it's not showing reactiveness and, and you've kind of had this persistent slab problem on the forecast for a while and, and people are probably tired of hearing about it, especially if avalanches aren't getting triggered on it. But as a forecaster, you still think of it as a, as an issue. And so any strategies that you could shed light on for, for that scenario?
0: I think that's a really, really, um, excellent kind of view. And one of the things, one of the hardest things about being a forecaster is not every day is interesting. Um, and sometimes even if it's interesting, it's not changing enough. To keep up the forecasters interest and i think in terms of a tip i think i think as forecasters we can do a better job divorcing ourselves of the way we feel on the morning versus what the public is is getting or assimilating or thinking because i don't think we really know that and it's easy to be in the chair in the morning or or in the evening and being like, oh my God, this is the same thing I've said for five days, for seven days. And I'm boring people to tears and they're not going to pay attention. Need to throw that stuff away. Your, your only job is to write down what you know and what you think, what your analysis is for the next day. That is your only job and your only thing to worry about. And so get past that. And then of course you can try and be creative. You can look for reasons to or ways to like trigger people's interest. But I think the most important thing is, is that most of the public's not reading this every single day. You know, a lot of people are, but most of them aren't. They're getting up and they're, or, you know, whenever they use it, but they're, they're looking before they, they head to the mountains. And um, so your job is to give them a clean message with, without your own baggage. And I think that's what you're talking about, Caleb, you know, because you're sitting there and you're just like, oh, my God, I'm sick of hearing myself say this. (laughs) Mm -hmm. And you want it to change. We all want it to change. But if it hasn't changed, it hasn't changed. You can simply Mm -hmm. say that. Hey, guys, I know it's Groundhog Day, but hey, this is where we're at, you know. And so. Yeah, so it's easy to be trite or kind of. Dismissive of that, and so I I think what you're getting at. So that's so that's the forecaster side. The other side is the public side. And when you're sitting there as a user, because we go through this as well, because we're users, you know, and you're sitting there and you're you're just like, I want to go ski that peak, but this it has not changed in days, you know, and so we start looking for reasons for why we can do what the forecast is saying not to do. And I think that's the harder and more interesting thing is how do we as, as individuals like take that information and work it into our, our plans. And you know, that one's, that one's tricky.
1: Mm. Yeah, absolutely. It takes some discipline out there, doesn't it?
0: Yes, it does.
1: Well, Simon, I appreciate you coming on the podcast today and, and sharing some of the information um, and initiatives coming out of the National Avalanche Center and, and shedding some light on the structure of the United States Avalanche Centers because I, I think it's uh, – frankly, it's pretty confusing for a lot of people <laughs> to see yeah. how all these pieces fit together. And may, and maybe a lot of people don't care, but I I tend to care, and I think if you're listening to this podcast, you probably care too. So um, appreciate you yeah laying it out for us and kind of giving us a great refresher on how to best use the forecast and how to interact with your local avalanche forecast center.
0: Yeah, thank you, and i should I should put in a plug for the uh, American Avalanche Association. We couldn't do any of this work without them. They do uh, like all the business administration side of things on this project, which is a at this point a six year project. They've done it all. So that's huge. And um, I'm kind of curious, Caleb, before you kick me off, like you use these tools at the Wallawa. What do you think of them?
1: I, I thought it was super user-friendly. Uh, la- I think last year was the first year that we started using it. And, um, you know, it's like anything. It took a little bit of getting used to, but it was very user-friendly. Um, I've been impressed and and I think it helps me do my job when I'm forecasting at the WAC so um, yeah I, I I don't really have any uh, constructive feedback for it um, of course I'm not putting out as many forecasts as maybe some other avalanche forecasters but um, I think it's I think it's great so awesome. nice work on it and and I know it's been a, a huge effort from a lot of people so Big thanks to everybody out there that has put some work in. Awesome. All right, Simon, we'll uh, look forward to meeting you out in the snow sometime, getting some skiing in with you, yeah. or some riding.
0: No, I hope that happens sooner than later.
1: All right. We'll have a great winter and uh, we'll catch up soon.
0: All right, man. Thanks.
1: Cheers. sure you enjoyed that one what a great conversation with simon troutman thanks simon for taking the time i know you're a busy guy music on today's episode was provided by ketsa with permission from the artist you can find more of ketsa's tracks at ketsa.uk our artwork was created by mike t you demand t check out more of his work at MikeT.com. today's episode was produced by cameron griffin thanks cam Don't forget to follow us on the social. You can find us on Instagram and Facebook at The Avalanche Hour Podcast. If you're enjoying the show, take the time to subscribe, rate, and review The Avalanche Hour Podcast on Apple Podcasts or whatever podcast platform you listen to it on. And don't forget to tell a friend. We're on the Tell a Friend program. If you got any feedback for the show, you can send us an email at theavalanchehourpodcast at gmail.com. If you want to help support the show beyond telling a friend and subscribing, rating, and reviewing, you could kick us a couple bucks. Check out theavalanchehour.com. There's a PayPal link there. You can donate some money to help grow the show. Thanks to Andrew Breibart for his recent donation. Appreciate you. Perhaps you remember episode 7.6 when Dom interviewed Avalanche Canada's Tyson Reddy and his work with the Braille Mountain Initiative. Well, the Braille Mountain Initiative Climathon is back for another year. The Braille Mountain Initiative was featured in that episode on 7.6 in mid November. It's a nonprofit that is providing backcountry skills and experiences for blind and visually impaired people. The Climathon is a key fundraiser for the Blind Mountain Initiative, and it starts on January 22nd. You can sign up to log your vertical from January 22nd to the end of February, raise money for a great cause, and win some great prizes. Check out tripledub.brailmountaininitiative.com for more information. And until next time, stay tuned, stay safe, and keep having fun out there. See ya.